When I was coming of age, uh, growing up in the church, the experience that I went through was uh, later to be called, affectionately or not affectionately, the worship wars. This was a period in the 1980s and 90s when churches were arguing over worship style. And uh, there were some people who thought that we should only sing hymns, and there were other people who thought we've got to junk all of those hymns and only sing choruses. And the, the uh, people who believed in hymns uh, believed that that was the way it needed to be done, that was the way we needed to worship, that was the way we expressed reverence for God. Those who uh, uh, wanted to sing choruses, newer songs, uh, said this is the way we have to reach people around us. We have to sing songs that they like, songs that they know. And uh, some of the formative experiences of my youth were watching church meetings degenerate into arguments over this topic. At a remove of 25, 30 years, the whole thing seems pretty stupid. That we would spend all of this time arguing about styles of songs. And uh, it, what, what was disillusioning for me about that whole experience was not just watching it unfold in one place, but then going on to another place and watching the same arguments erupt there, and then watching the same arguments erupt in another place yet again. Um, so you can understand why I did not want to be a pastor. Growing up in, in church and watching the way churches functioned and argued about these things, I was basically of the mind that if you wanted any, to get anything done, don't go to church. Don't go into ministry. Because it is a place of irrelevant, overconfident, strident, and insulting arguments about useless topics. So, uh, having looked at that and uh, thinking about all of that, it, it has brought me to think about false confidence in churches. The fact that we put so much confidence in certain things we, put, we, we see so much at stake in specific things, methods, personalities, doctrines, whatever it may be, and we will fight to the death over those things because our confidence is in those things. Our confidence may be in a charismatic leader. Our confidence may be in a certain demographic, if we can just reach these people, then we will be a vigorous and vital church and we will have a future. 
and our confidence may be in a certain doctrine. If we would just teach this particular way of thinking about the scriptures, if we would just teach this line of thought and follow this brand of teaching, if we would just do these things, everything would be fine. False confidence. Here's what I notice about it. It leads to fear. When a church's confidence is in the wrong things, the church becomes afraid because the confidence that it has is not enough. You ever noticed when you come into a church that is overconfident in a charismatic leader, how everyone becomes afraid of crossing that leader or of uh, disobeying that leader or in some way that, that that leader might go away or something like that. And the church uh, bends over backwards to please that leader. But the flip side of that is for the leader himself or herself, that leader has so many expectations piled on them, they cannot possibly fulfill it. The leader is afraid, the people are afraid. False confidence leads to fear. Maybe you've been in a place that is trying to reach a certain demographic of people. No, we've got to do it like this. All the colors have to be like this. All the songs have to be like this. Everybody has to dress like this. You can't use that word anymore. You can't talk this way. You have to have this certain kind of personality, and we have to use these kinds of things in our worship service, or they won't come. And so you look at the confidence that people have in these superficialities and you realize they're afraid. You can't possibly go to church and mess up the sales pitch because otherwise people won't come to Jesus and it'll be your fault. Or doctrine. People believing that if you just preach their favorite doctrine, fill in the blank. Doctrine of election, predestination, end times, pre-tribulation, rapture, whatever it may be. Just fill in the blank. You, you, it, it doesn't even matter what the doctrine is. If there is a false confidence in intellectual checking boxes in the teaching of the church, and that the church's job is to convey a certain intellectual or doctrinal position. Where that false confidence is, there is another kind of fear. A kind of fear of asking questions at all, much less saying anything that might seem to contradict the favorite doctrine of that particular church. False confidence in a church leads to fear. So here's where I'm going with this. We're in a series talking about the fact that people get hurt by churches and we get disillusioned by all of these things. And um, what I would like you to consider, if you are that person, if you're saying, yes, that's me, I just got rolled over by a church back there in, in my formative years and they just... They destroyed me. It was evil what happened to me. I'd ask you to consider that it may not be that all of the people who hurt you in the past in the church 
were evil, malicious, out to get you, out to destroy you. They may simply have been afraid. Fearful people do destructive things. You ever felt shunned by a church? There's fear behind that. Have you ever, uh, have you ever felt um, criticized, made the enemy by a group of people? Had that wall put up against you? That's fear doing that. That is not the grace of God. What I'd like you to consider is that um, if we start asking what, are, what is the true source of confidence in the church? How do we leave all the false confidence in a church and, and set our confidence as a community in the true place, the right place, the real source of strength? How do we do that? If we actually address those questions, we're not just conforming our hearts and minds to the scriptures and to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which we need to do. We're not just doing that. We're at the same time dispelling fear and increasing our confidence in the right way. And in doing that, we're getting ready to minister. Because you can't minister to people out of fear. You can only minister to people out of confidence, out of what you genuinely know to be true and right, life-giving. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at Second uh, Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6, which Troy read for us earlier in the service. Such is, verse 4, the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient to claim in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We're going to talk about these words that describe to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the confidence that Paul has from it. Let's just uh, remind ourselves of the context here. The, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church is a troubled one. The, the Corinthians, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, are disillusioned with Paul. They've got people in their midst who are making all sorts of accusations against Paul. And uh, Paul, on his part, has been in the position, leading this church spiritually, of having to confront things that were going on in the church that were simply not right, some outright abusive situations, and he had to call it out and call the church to address those issues in faith and in repentance. And so this relationship between the Corinthian church and Paul was under tremendous strain. And it was in the context of that that Paul said, we don't need letters of recommendation to you. We don't need letters of recommendation from you. We're not celebrity preachers going around like itinerant peddlers of God's word. Our relationship with you is the letter of recommendation, and Jesus Christ is writing that letter. He's taking that stylus 
on the tablet of our hearts together. And he is writing a letter saying, this relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is the real deal. These people are growing together. They are being open with each other. They are learning me, Christ, together. And Jesus is writing that letter, Paul says, in their relationship on their hearts. And so he says that because the Spirit of the living God is doing this, writing this letter, verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Paul says, even in the midst of all of this difficulty, I am completely confident because I know that the Spirit of God is at work in us. Um, it all seems counterintuitive. We're confident when everything's going well, when our relationships are clear and straight and we have no problems with each other. That's when we're confident. But here is Paul in the moment of, of tremendous conflict and disillusionment saying, I am confident here in this place because I know the Spirit of God is at work even through these difficulties. How can he say such a counterintuitive thing? That's what we're going to look at in this paragraph. We're actually going to expound this paragraph backwards. We're going to start at the end and work our way uh, back toward verse 4. So taking it at the end of verse 6, I want you to see where Paul is headed in this little paragraph and what he concludes. Um, the basic principle that he is working with here and uh, not only here but throughout this whole letter. The principle is in the last sentence of verse 6. It's about life. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. This is one of the great fill-in-the-blank verses where we can project onto the word life kind of whatever we want. The, the Spirit fills me with life, life-equaling, wonderful emotions about my life and the significance of my life and the significance of everything that I'm doing. The Spirit of God makes me feel good about myself. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Or, life equals growth, numerically. We're we're a growing church, and the Spirit gives life, and the, the life is there in the numerical growth of the people. Just look at all the people coming to this, this church, and look at how it has grown and all of these things, and that is proof that the Holy Spirit is here because the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. This principle here is not a Rorschach test, an ink blot that you can just kind of react to any old way you want to. This verse is saying something very specific about the Holy Spirit. What is life? It literally means he makes life happen. If you think about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was present at the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, 
and um, the earth was formless and void, and who is there hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God is there. Uh, if we think about um, the, the new life that we have in Jesus Christ, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and, and uh, says, you're a faithful teacher, and Jesus says, I don't care what you think of me. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. You need to be born from above. And how does that happen? How does that new life come into you? The Spirit gives that life. In fact, John the Baptist said about Jesus, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He immerses you in the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. So let's think about life. What happens in the first moments of life? Screaming. That's what happens. A lot of crying. Uh, the, the little baby is, is born, thrust out into this new world, and that stops right away, though, doesn't it? Because everything is just fixed after that. The, the crying stops, and, and everybody's happy and overjoyed, right? No, that's when the colic starts, because <laughs> they start eating uh, in the normal way or the not normal way, and they, so they, they start taking in all this stuff, and they're unhappy about that. But then once you get over that, everything's fine, right? No, and they start teething. And then they start wanting to walk. And when they start to walk and this new ability of life starts to come out of them, and they, they start to pull themselves up and take a few steps, they fall down, they whack their heads on the floor and on furniture, and then there's more crying after that. Uh, and then, you know, they change and they grow and they get skinned knees and banged up and, and they get disappointments. They don't make the team they want to make. They don't feel included with all the rest of their friends. They're growing socially and emotionally, becoming aware of themselves. They're becoming sexually awakened because all of that is starting in their bodies. And then there's just more tears and more difficulty and more trouble. You see the point here. Life is attended with struggle, difficulty, pain, tears. That's life. Yeah, heavy sighs here in the front row. <laughs> That's life. So, whatever it means by the Spirit gives life, it does not mean that the tears stop that the pain stops, the difficulty stops, and everything runs smoothly. That is not what he is saying. That can't be what he means because he's right in the middle of a difficult situation, as we've been saying. What he's saying is the Spirit gives life that in all of these difficulties, there is proof positive in all our crying and tears and difficulty that the Spirit of God is at work and He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing. Now take the other side of that statement. The letter kills. I don't even really want to think about that. 
because I was kind of enjoying there for a moment, thinking about life as it begins and as it grows and as it changes and even with all of the difficulties. It's a marvel what God does with life. Now, what happens to kill life? Well, it's an act of violence. It's a direct action. It's not an accident. It's not a, uh, a fluke. When it says the letter kills, it means that there's a growing, living thing, a being who is changing in all of its difficulty and struggle and something comes along and strikes that life and kills it. And that's all the further I want to think about that. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. How are we to understand this? I want you to think of the letter here as those letters written on tablets of stone. Where are you getting that, Pastor? I'm getting it from verse 3. The Spirit of the living God is not writing with ink. He's not writing on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. What tablets of stone might Paul have in mind that have letters on them that kill? It's the Ten Commandments. So this is Paul calling to mind the foundation of our morality and saying those laws hold your life in their hands, as it were. They strike you and they kill you. Here's the worst part. Paul does not mean that the law is doing something bad or wrong. The law is right. What he's saying is when we break the law of God, there is death. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. So you've got this weird situation here where the letter the morality, the ethics of right and wrong have killed us because we've broken them. And then after that has happened, after we're dead in sin, the Spirit comes along and the Spirit gives life. There's tremendous hope in this. Because this is Paul teaching us that the Holy Spirit is about a post-sin, post-death, new creation, a redeemed life. And he's saying to the Corinthians, that's what we've got. We've got the Holy Spirit creating life in us where there was only death before let me just make this observation and then I'll, I'll ask you a question. Here's the observation. Our society is deeply hypocritical 
about sin. As long as nothing really destructive is happening to me, I look at the sins of the people around me that they are doing to other people. It's not really hurting me. It's just it's hurting everybody else. And I, I want everybody, let's just, let's just calm down and let's just get therapy. And that's what I want when I look at destruction happening to other people. Let's just get healing. Let's just get therapy. Let's all work through this. What happens when the destruction touches me? When those sins cost me something, take something away from me, destroy something of mine. Do I want therapy for the sinner anymore? No, I want justice. The letter is about justice. What does the letter do again? It kills. Here's the question I have for you. And you can apply it more broadly than I'm giving it here. I'm going to ask you to think in terms of experiences where you have felt wronged by a church. Where all of a sudden, it's not theory anymore. Now, accusations have hit you and your reputation has been hurt. Your relationships have been hurt. It has cost you all of a sudden. What's your response to that? Is it the letter or the spirit? Very often our response to wrongs done against us by churches or people in authority or family, uh, family figures, loved ones, our response is, I want justice. I want them to understand that what they did to me was wrong. Okay. You can have that, but what happens to the relationship with when the letter comes in and does what the letter does so well, calls out wrong and makes it accountable for being wrong? What happens when that occurs? Death. So let me take this one step further. If you are in a position of having said, to a church, or to spiritual people in your life, other Christians, I've had enough of you because you're, you hurt me and you're all a bunch of fakes and I don't want to be around it. It's just all triggers all the time. I'm done with this. Because what you did to me was wrong. If you're in that position this morning, is your relationship dead or alive with that church? Is your relationship with those people dead or alive? If it is dead, according to this principle in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, if the letter kills but the Spirit gives life, are you being led into life by the Holy Spirit if your relationships with real Christians are dead? Straightforward answer, no. The death indicates that the law has spoken. 
And that's where the matter lies. Lies in the grave. So that's where Paul ends up in this. Um, he says, we have the Holy Spirit. Spirit gives life. It's a screaming, struggling, painful life. But all of that difficulty is, is just an expression of the growth and the strength and the development that is taking place. So let's back up to the beginning of verse 6. Why is he talking in terms of the letter and the spirit? Because he's been talking about covenants. Verse 6 says that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Oh, so the letter kills. There's an old covenant attached to that death, a justice covenant. And the Ten Commandments really sum up that justice covenant. That's what that covenant was about. It saves no one. It condemns everyone. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all owe that debt of justice, and so the letter has delivered its sentence. We are dead in sins. But that's the old covenant, Paul says. We're not competent under that old covenant to administer justice. Now, watch this, because this is going to go right to the heart of what you want as a person. Do you want justice or do you want life? You're going to have to choose between those two things. They're mutually exclusive. Because if you're competent under the old covenant as ministers of the old covenant, then you come in and you deliver what the letter of that covenant delivers. Death. This says, God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, this new covenant, what does that mean? That where the letter killed, giving right justice in reply to our wrongs, where the letter did that, the Spirit came in and gave life again after the death had occurred. So you're dead, and then the Spirit renews your life. That's another covenant. That's another set of promises from God that he is working out in our lives. What Paul is saying here is, you, Corinthians, and us, Paul and his colleagues, we're ministers all together of this new covenant, and we are competent under that covenant to see life grow. Think about this. That means that where wrong happens, you, in Jesus Christ, are competent, skilled, ready, sufficient to see life abound where there was only death. You are. And all of us together here in this room. That's a powerful thing. 
So let's back up one more. Verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Sufficiency, competence. The get-or-done capabilities. Paul says, where does that come from? It comes from God. So what does that mean? That means God gave the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, to account for wrong. And it did its job and it continues to do its job. It continues to kill by calling out our sins and saying, this is destructive. So relationships die. And, and spirits die. Emotions die. Cultures die. And eventually people die. And so God sent that covenant in order to make the world, us, accountable for the destruction that we do. But then... He is not satisfied with that. He comes back to that death and says, there's another covenant, a new covenant. That's the covenant that comes in and gives life. And so everything that has been touched by the death that is the wages of sin, all of it can be raised to life in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And it is delivered by the Holy Spirit. So where does that come from? Well, it can't come from us because we're under the condemnation of the law. So we are the objects of that sentence of death. We can't bring life. We're not competent to do it. Do you want to go into the courtroom and have the convicted felon switch places with the judge? I don't think so. I think we want to keep the felon where he or she is, and we want to keep the judge where he or she is. I don't want to reverse that. When we think that we are competent to convict others of sin, we're trying to switch places with the judge, already under conviction from the law. So Paul is saying, we're not competent to do that. We're also not competent to bring life. How can the convicted felon, condemned by the jury and sentenced, how can that felon undo what he or she did? Make it right. Can't be done. Can't give life back where it was taken can't restore emotions. Even the vengeance of the law will not bring life back and restore the emotions of the victims of the crime. So we're not competent to do any of this, but our sufficiency is from God. God came and created that new covenant, gave us the promises that end the verdict and sentence of the law. And where we were dead in our sins makes us alive in Jesus Christ. God did that, not us. So our sufficiency is not coming from us. We don't have to promote ourselves in order 
to uh, project a false confidence that can never accomplish anything. All we have to do is believe that God is at work in the troubled relationships of our lives and that his Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency, the competence is from him. So if you go back to verse 4, now we understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. The confidence we have is Christ died the death that we owed. He fulfilled the demands, the right demands of the letter. Because the letter is right. The letter is right in its accountability. The letter of the law, the Ten Commandments of the law are right in the measurements and standards they give, but they are fulfilled and their demands met by the death of Christ. So because Christ has died and because he rose again and sent his spirit into us, he has made us competent to be stewards of this new life. And the competency doesn't come from him. It comes from the power and faithfulness of God. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What is the true confidence of a church? It cannot be in any charismatic leader. It cannot be in any method or any program. It cannot be in its success in numbers or at hitting its targets. It cannot be in money. The success of a church, the confidence of a church, cannot be in any of these things. Those are the things that make the church afraid because those things break and disappear and dissolve. False confidence leads to fear every time. Our confidence as a church has to be exclusively in the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ that he is at work in the midst of this screaming, difficult, painful life that we have. Now, if you approach it that way, you have hope in hostile situations. Because when you're in difficulty, you know you're exactly where God called you to be. And your hope is that the faithfulness of God will continue to give you strength, life, power, and transformation the more you trust Him in the midst of the difficulty. So, let me pause here and see what we have here. Thank you. I have some wonderful sketches from my son illustrating life. They're great. You'll have to see him about that. He does listen to these sermons. Here's a question. The Spirit is said to be the river of living water. Jesus spoke of in John 7, uh, 37 to 39. So this, this idea of living water 
is, it runs throughout the scriptures that the Spirit gives life the same way a river gives life. Um, I was up in Reading yesterday uh, doing some rehearsing uh, with the North State Symphony and took a walk in the afternoon in that wonderful park they have along uh, the Sacramento River. And it just struck me, looking at that river, even before we've got any significant rain, just how powerful that river is. So the idea of the Spirit as a river of living water is an image of the Spirit giving life. And it, it uh, is something throughout the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4, 9, uh, we often condemn the concept of condemnation. But uh, verse 9 seems to some degree to elevate the ministry of condemnation as having worth to the glory of God. Okay? Um, I think that may mean 3-9, not 4-9. Uh, so here's 3.9. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now we're going to talk about this more next week because that's the, the very next paragraph we're going to see. But this question is right. The ministry of condemnation came with the glory of God. Because justice is glorious. It's just not in our favor. The fact that it's not in our favor doesn't make it any less glorious. It's just we may not be well placed to see it or understand it or sympathize with it, but if you've ever been on the receiving end of crime and you see the strength of justice answering that crime, you get a little glimpse of something of the glory of God there. And so the ministry of condemnation is bad for us, but it is the glory of God because justice is right. It's a deep human need. And if we minimize it, we're taking something out of our hearts that we need in order to be fully human. Uh, very good questions. Let's go on to uh, consider how to water this hope when I was first a pastor, um, it was coming out of and, and to some extent um, back into the disillusionment that, uh, that I felt coming of age in the church because everything that I thought was uh, so unprofitable was now my job. So... How are you going to do that? To a certain extent, the beginning of my ministry confronted me with a crisis of confidence. What do you have confidence in? That's what you're going to take to a church. Well, I had no confidence in my skills because as far as I could see, my skills skills caused as many problems as they solved. And the particular skills that I had weren't really the most popular ones. 
So I didn't really have any confidence in those. I didn't have confidence in a particular style of music because I'd already been through that. I didn't have any confidence in changing the style of music because I'd already been through that and seen the results of that. I didn't have confidence in programs, buildings, finances, any of it. And it, to some extent, being called to ministry without any of that confidence was uh, like going to do a job without tools. It was like saying, yeah, I know I have to do these jobs. I have to I do this job. I have to use all of these things. But these things are inadequate. They don't work. They don't do the thing that needs to be done. So what am I going to do? In other words, if I wasn't going to have confidence in the false things, then I still had a decision to make what was I going to have confidence in? If you're in the position today of having decided, well, the churches today have confidence in all the wrong things, so I'm out. Well, you've made your decision. You've put your confidence in the letter of judgment upon the church. You've put your confidence in death and you're out. How's that working? It didn't work for me. I tried it when I was trying not to be a pastor. Um, so the fact that you identify false sources of confidence doesn't mean you're done. You still have to decide what are the right sources of confidence. Let me give you two. Here's where Paul goes with this immediately after talking about the transformation and freedom that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit at the end of chapter 3. He continues 4.1, therefore, because the, the ministry of the Spirit is so powerful in all of this trouble, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You notice how, how that works here. The transforming ministry of the Spirit he moves directly to the ministry of the Word of God. This. So what I had to do as a pastor already disillusioned before it even had a ministry coming into a church is I had to settle where is my confidence. My confidence has to be here in the Spirit's power and in the Word's power. So, we'll declare this, we'll declare it openly, we'll go in deep, we'll bore people to death. I'm willing to do that. Because, 
So what are you saying? <laughs> we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. So what is coming out of the scriptures is the fragrance of life in Christ. And my job is to put my confidence in the free, open, sincere declaration of what this says. And that's what reaches you. Because the Spirit of God is in you. And the Spirit of God responds to that fragrance. I have all confidence in that. The Word of God works. The Word of God brings life. It awakens life in you. Because the Spirit of God takes that Word and gives it that, it breaks open that fragrance of life. Because that's what He does. Spirit gives life. Uh, some people take the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life to set the, the Spirit of God in opposition to the Word of God. I can't imagine a greater blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I use that term advisedly. Because the Holy Spirit gave the Word of God this. If the Spirit gave this, how can He be in opposition to this? He didn't give this to kill us. He gave this to save us. The Spirit does give life. He gives it through the Word of God. So, that's where my confidence is. Now, out of the Word of God and out of the life of that, relationships develop and people are one for Christ and churches grow and buildings are built and programs become effective. All of those things, all of those tools suddenly spring to life because the Word of God is taught and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But without it, the tools just fall to the ground, useless and broken. Second source of confidence is on a disciplined focus. Go back to verse 5 of chapter 3. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. What we need is a disciplined focus on the character and glory of God that if a thing does not express the glory of God openly and directly and beautifully, it's not worth doing. So can you argue about worship styles as churches did 20 years ago to the glory of God? No. You can argue yourself to death, but you can't argue yourself to life. 
And so if you take every faction of the church today uh, among evangelicals in America, none of those arguments take the focus of the church and put it on the glory of God. They take the arguments and they take the church's focus and put it on their petty little claims that they've got all the answers and you need to follow them. Like the guy who predicted the end of the world yesterday. How many more of these are we going to have to have before it's like they're lining up? Harold Camping no more no sooner than dies and there's someone else uh, up to take his place. Um, this, this is nuts. And what we have uh, in, in the church today is this sense that my small, narrow world should be the defining thing for the, the aspirations of the church. My little world should be my needs, my desires, my wants. These are the things that should drive everything. You know what this is? The Bible calls it idolatry. So we need a disciplined focus to say if it's not going to express the glory of God, and he tells us how he wants his glory expressed, if it's not going to do that, it's not worth doing. Eliminates a whole lot of competing priorities, doesn't it? Keeps us with a strong sense of what is most important, and that's what we most need. Where is your confidence today? Is your confidence in your certainty of being right? Watch that carefully. The letter kills. Is your confidence in the relationship that Jesus has given you to God and with each other? Is your confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit? That is the source of life. You need to water and nourish that hope. We've got some time for a couple more questions. Here is one. When I had opinions about style, I found that I never actually worshipped God at all. How freeing to let that opinion go. Um, this is a great example of disciplined focus. The more we focus on how right we are about all of the wrong that is happening around us, the more we focus on that, the more we're focusing on ourselves, our claims, our demands, our arguments, and not focusing on God. And this can invade our worship, and, and it does. So this is a great example of that, and it is freeing to let those things go. When we let those things go, we end up saying, you know, whether, whether I'm right about this or not, here we are together. And we're going to worship God, we're going to give glory to God, we're going to keep the priority where it belongs, and that is on His greatness, His goodness, and His grace. Uh, so, very good comment. Loved ones, this week is for God's glory. This day is for God's glory. So as we are dismissed from this place, as I hope you'll come back tonight at 6 o'clock, let's... Let's be dismissed 
under the blessing of God, with his good hand ushering us out into this week for his glory. And go in confidence. Thank you.